I'm George Comedy, and you're listening to First Watch. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the tug of war between revenue teams and security teams. Sometimes it's like a family problem with internal teams fighting it out. But what happens when your IT or security services are outsourced to a managed service provider? The dynamic changes. MSPs are growing as companies large and small struggle with capacity and skill shortages. We wanted to learn more, so we turned to Frank Smith, who leads the cybersecurity practice at Intiva, a consulting and MSP firm in the DC area, and one that's been named one of Inc. Magazine's 500 fastest growing companies in America five years in a row. Welcome to First Watch, Frank. Hey, thank you. Pleased to be here. Yeah, so you have the distinction of being officially our first guest from a managed services provider. So um, I am keen to start with the business case for, for an MSP. Um, let's start with, can you speak to some of the reasons that clients are coming to Intiva? Is it simply a lack of internal capacity? Is it a lack of expertise, a uh, lack of hands on the controls? What's, what's the primary reasons they're coming to you? So you hit a bunch of them already, um, and I think it's very much a, a, a business decision. Um, in part, it's a cost. In part, it's say we don't have the internal resources. Um, I think some of it is a realization that one person and walking around and hooking up printers and you know setting up a laptop just kind of doesn't cut it anymore. The environment's got incredibly complex. Um, the skill sets are so broad. Um, if you want to hire six people to do all the different things, mm -hmm. uh, suppose that's an option, but most companies would look at it and say, I think I can outsource that better. And quite frankly, the cloud model has gotten people thinking about outsourcing. Uh, I don't need to keep those resources in-house because number one, I have less things to maintain. So I think... Um, I think there's a lot of drivers to it, but uh, ultimately um, it just makes sense for most business models. Okay. And then um, just as a, a risk weather report before we continue, um, what are some of the threats that your customers are most worried about? I assume ransomware is probably somewhere on that list. Um, are they talking third-party risk vis-a-vis -vis solar winds? What's the zeitgeist? So, um, solar winds, I think, was a wake-up call for a lot of people. Um, we've previously kind of everybody went, yeah, you know, I'm installing that software. My virus scan didn't pop on it, um, didn't tell me anything was absolutely wrong, so I didn't really have to worry about it. And the, the wake-up call should have been even greater because the ramifications of that are much deeper and will mm -hmm. be with us much longer than I think we're going to, you know, than, than what we did see. Um, Solar Winds was front page for a day and a half, and then it went to page 10, and then it pretty much was relegated to only the tech media. But, you know, we had a contested election. We had surging viruses. Uh, we had uh, holidays coming up. It's difficult to keep people's attention on that. But long term, I think now there is this awareness that cybersecurity is no longer an afterthought. Um, ransomware, compromised credentials, phishing, 
um, fake ACH information. All of these things impact the bottom line. And we have plenty of tools and techniques and policies and procedures and ways of defending against that that don't have to break the bank. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think to your point, you know, SolarWinds has been occupying a lot of InfoSec Twitter for a while or just the larger supply chain conversation. But I think, yes, there was a disjuncture between its prevalence in the industry versus how top of mind it was to business leaders, right? CEOs yeah. and boards. Um, but uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. So and, and, and it, look, look at the, the the change to the threat actor too. This wasn't um, mm -hmm. this wasn't a, a couple of kids somewhere in um, you know China trying to take money out of um, your Bank of America account um, for I guess depending on who you talk to. Right. Uh, this has been traced back to um, Russian intelligence or at least implicated Russian intelligence. And they didn't just go after um, the federal space. They went after a lot of large businesses. This was a very patient uh, attack. They were looking for information and they were in it for the long term. So that really changes the environment and it makes everybody take a, another look at it. Yeah, and I think the notion also that the actual infrastructure, right? It's like somebody attacking the foundation of your house rather than just going through the front door. So we've been really yeah. preoccupied with network intrusion or phishing, but if they they figured out if they can just go in through the tools you're already using yeah. and compromise those, yeah, that's and, a... And look how it was traced back to an intern account that had Solar Winds 2020 or something to that effect. Yes, yes, the password. <laughs> um, yeah, and so we're right back to compromised credentials and phishing as the the single largest source of attack for everybody. Indeed. Okay, so as the old adage goes in information security, it's uh, it's all about people, process, and technology. And um, I am curious, from your experience with your clients, is there any one of these three facets that that from your perspective is presenting the largest challenge currently to enterprises? So great uh, follow on to the previous one, it's people. Mm -hmm. uh, we can deploy some technology and that's a big enabler and that is a force multiplier and it provides really good defense. But if people are not doing the right things, then everything's susceptible we can instill password requirements. You can still have a lousy password. You know, most companies right. use some variation of eight characters and three of the four types of things to include. Well, password one dollar sign meets all of those complexity requirements. Right. And it's the number one, it, you can go on the dark web and buy the list, right? Uh, and get the list of the passwords that are likely to get you into a system. And that's number one on the list. For sure. And also to your point about people, it's maybe even the decision-making too, right? So there's the password, but then there's the decision-making. Like if you do get clipped by ransomware, what is your protocol inside? Have you established that? Or are you kind of panicking? Do you pay it? And if you end up paying it, as we have seen, you kind of paint a larger target on your back because now everyone knows you're going to pay out. 
Yeah. Uh, and I have known people, um, none of our clients, um, you know, because if you want to defend against ransomware, one of the greatest things to have is a good backup. Mm -hmm. um, you can deploy some other tools and technologies, and we do that as well. Uh, we have not had a client pay a ransom. Um, but the generally accepted belief is, is to not pay it. I believe that is the you know, law enforcement's general position is don't pay it because it just encourages more. Um, however, folks that I do know that have paid it say it's been some of the best customer service they've ever had. Somewhere <laughs> yeah. operators are encouraged to, here's where you deposit the Bitcoin. Thank you, you deposited the Bitcoin. Here's the keys to unlock everything. And they do in fact go away you're probably on a list somewhere, but um, you know if they if they took the money and ran, they would defeat their own case for ransomware. Um, Indeed, I think I saw a couple of screenshots of a similar type, quote unquote, customer service conversation on Twitter a couple of months back, and uh, everyone was sort of shocked at the level of professionalism there. But the threat actor is, in many cases, sometimes it's a lone wolf, but Sometimes it's um, very sophisticated operations. I mean, this is a job yes. for somebody. Um, so ransomware as a service, yep. one of the cloud offerings. Um, last year, September-ish timeframe, uh, law enforcement, FBI, in conjunction with some others, did a great job of shutting down one of the uh, ransomware as a service operations. So 2020 didn't look as bad as 2019. Mm -hmm. um, just in the last maybe three weeks or so, I've seen it, its successor organization is back up and running and going full bore. So we'll see what happens with 2021. So far, 2021 has been an eventful year for cyber. Um, but, um, you know, hopefully people are doing the right things. And, and while we're, you know, we're talking cyber, we're talking IT focus. Um, you can put the greatest tool in there. You can have phishing prevention training. We can do a lot of things, but if somebody gets fake ACH information to update um, somebody's payment information and a company has bad accounting practices and doesn't pick up the phone and call the other company and say, mm -hmm. did you just send me new accounting information? Um, you've just defeated all the technology just simply because an accounts payable clerk didn't verify the information. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, so I, I guess something that has come up recently with us is we've heard from a lot of CISOs on the desire to stay ahead of these threats, right? They always feel like they're on the back foot. Um, and that's very aspirational that they want to stay ahead and be less reactive, um, but it always feels like they're sort of stuck in this perpetual reactive uh, position. Can, mm -hmm. you, can you speak a little bit? I know we've talked previously about helping your clients think proactively, but I'm keen to get you to expound on, on just how you get them involved in that mindset. Sure. Um, so we have developed internally for our clients, our own sort of um, cyber maturity model that boils it down to, into just a couple of dozen basic sort of things um, that are an indication on how mature your cyber processes are. 
And this is everything from policies and procedure and training. And oh, there's this technology piece to it too, right? Um, but it's not all about technology. Um, we're trying to get our, our uh, clients to think about it from the standpoint of right now today, my, I'm willing to live with a certain level of risk because I don't process social security numbers mm -hmm. or I don't have credit cards. And, and so they're less inclined to sort of jump off and do something. Um, but even if you have fairly modest, you know, either compliance or handling requirements, you should always be kind of thinking about the next level. And the next level may not be that big of a reach. And so we're kind of using it as a hand to say, take clients by the hand and say, um, hey, here you go. You know, here's where you are. This is what you've got in place. Here's some modest improvements you can make. Um, and sometimes it's only a couple of dollars per user. Um, and let's go ahead and deploy something new. And that gets you to the next level. And then when they get at that level, you say, hey, well, maybe you ought to be thinking about some other things. And we basically are trying to do it as um, a, a coaching metaphor that says, here's where you are, here's what your next things could be, and let's create a path to get there. And I presume, depending on the type of business, but if they are handling you know, their own customers' data, that added layers of security become a business differentiator for them, right? They can, your customers can go to their customers and say, we have achieved these layers and, you know, go to our competition and ask them if they've you know, done the same. Absolutely. And, um, it, and it, you want to be ahead of that, this, that differentiator curve mm -hmm. because more and more. And again, this, this is related fallout from the solar winds, um, uh, incident. Uh, we're seeing much more flow down requirements. Mm -hmm. Interesting. A company may not have its own necessarily compliance requirements, but one of their clients has compliance requirements. And as part of justifying their own compliance, they're turning to their vendors and suppliers and looking and saying, hey, what are you doing about this? Right. You're helping us with this. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been reaching out to some um, uh, of uh, our clients in the legal um, vertical that we support. And, you know, law offices have all kinds of different areas they operate in. They're always specialized. Um, some are more general than others, but, you know, they focus on patent or they focus on criminal or they focus on whatever it is. I'm reaching out and saying, your clients, in order to share information with you, are going to have to flow down their requirements. So if they have a HIPAA requirement or a CMMC requirement, mm -hmm. uh, in order to share data with you so that you can effectively advise them, they can't give you the data unless you meet the same compliance requirements they do. And it's gonna be a big wake up call for that community, but that's just the easiest example for flow down. Um, you're gonna see this everywhere now. Everybody's right. gonna ask all of their suppliers, um, I think yesterday, maybe even it was this morning, I don't remember, NIST uh, put out an update to their supply chain framework mm -hmm. uh, and specifically added cybersecurity to it. Um, it's a thing. It's going to get a lot more attention as the months go on. Yeah, and especially if you're 
an organization married to a particular framework. Like if you've built your infrastructure and your systems around NIST or maybe MITRE mm-hmm. attack or something else, then anytime they make a change that has ramifications, unless you want to say that you're going to pick and choose. But um, so you did, you brought up compliance and um, other risks. So that puts me to a mind to ask about when you're working with clients, um, we run into this sometimes, cyber still kind of has that mystique around it, IT, quite technical. But what we're talking about fundamentally is business risk, which touches a lot of different stakeholders. Do do you end up having to work across multiple stakeholders or kind of translate um, maybe cyber ideas to uh, maybe legal and risk teams or compliance teams? Yeah, it, it, it's actually a real big thing. Um, mm. And in some industries, it's easier because the requirements are really well defined. Mm-hmm. In others, they're more like suggestions. Um, you would think some of the financial services things would be more clearly defined. And like FINRA gives um, anybody who's registered with FINRA has real specific requirements on data retention and things like that. But it's kind of loose in terms of it says, well, here's best practices for cybersecurity, but it doesn't really require necessarily a whole lot. Right. Um, So you take those suggestions and everything else and kind of say, look, and I almost don't like saying best practice because that's such a moving target and it's so so opinionated anyway. Mm-hmm. But you can basically go at it and say, I have a basic framework. I have some basic ideas. Here are some basic technologies. You deploy the technologies. You put a procedure around it for maintaining it. You create a policy that says the company is committed to doing it. And you get everybody's buy-in that you're in fact going to do it. And it's not just checking a box. And whether you use one of the established frameworks or simply go out there and say, I'm going to find the best uh, endpoint detection and I'm going to find the best intrusion detection and I'm going to do the best regardless of how you approach it. As long as you're approaching it, I'm happy to have the conversation with you. Back to my conversation with Frank Smith in a moment. If you like this episode of First Watch and want to hear others, hit subscribe. You can catch up on past episodes like our interview with Eric Cole on the skills CISOs need to translate the technical to the business side. And you'll get new ones straight to your feed. Now back to my conversation with Frank Smith. If you are a managed service provider, there is a situation in which your teams have hands on the controls and you may be the first to spot a gap either in the tech stack or in a process or, you know, data handling, whatever. So how do you work with your clients to close that gap if it requires kind of new budgeting, right? Because this is a perennial issue for cybersecurity teams is they get this budget at the beginning of the year, but cyber, to your point, is a moving target. If something opens up or a new business process comes online, they have to close those gaps. And sometimes they don't get budget to the whole next, you know, next fiscal year. Yeah. And, and just winning the argument, I guess, internally is my, is my question. Um, you know, so the, the, the first aspect to it is, of course, translating it out of IT talk. Because mm-hmm. ultimately, as you said, it is a business decision. And... For many of our clients, we are their internal, their internal IT department. 
Some of them might have a person or two. Most probably don't have anybody. Our point of contact might be the office manager or the CFO or just somebody who is an IT hobbyist. Um, and that's who we're interfacing with. But the ultimate decision maker is going to be the CEO, the CFO. They're all going to weigh in. They're happy to commit money to things that make sense from a business sense. If you give it to them, um, here's going to be the impact on the business. Some of it is mitigating risk. If we see it, and, and let me qualify that with some things that we see, if we uncover it, we're notified of vulnerabilities, we're mm -hmm. just going to go out and fix it, right? This is, by the way, we need a downtime for maintenance tonight because whichever vendor announced a vulnerability and it's being actively exploited, uh, ask anybody with an on-prem exchange server what happened. Right, right, right. We got to patch that exchange server stat. <laughs> Yeah, and then we got to make sure that there's no long-term indicators of compromise, right? Mm -hmm. um, all of that requires time, effort, and money. Um, we'll do those things proactively as much as we possibly can. Um, other things, you look at it and you go, you're not optimally configured. And here's the risk, here's the exposure, here's the what it costs to get well. And a lot of times the get well plan has recurring costs, mm -hmm. um, but it's really that um, here's your exposure. You can kind of help define it from the standpoint of how much dollars that involves. And some of it is reputational and it's uh, much less tangible than simply saying if we're down because of whatever happened. Um, so it, it's a tough discussion sometimes, but ultimately it's relatively easy to say for a modest increase in recurring costs, you're protecting yourself against an entire category of threat. Um, Multi-factor authentication is, is a key one. Um, the number of people that continue to go and, and deploy solutions, and I think a lot about using O365 here, and they go, we don't really want to enable multi-factor authentication because mm -hmm. it's inconvenient or our users complained they didn't like it, or we don't want to pay $2 a month, you know, for whatever extra cost. The bottom line is in a lot of cases, it doesn't really cost anything. Almost everybody has a smartphone anyway. Um, people are getting used to it. Your bank probably doesn't allow you to have an account anymore unless it has multi-factor on it because they don't want the exposure of even offering the option a lot of businesses I'm having that exact same discussion. Well, that's a good, that's a good point. The bank is a really good example because they have made the change because from a banking business standpoint, they're not going to get any kind of cyber insurance if they don't have, you know, certain layers of protection. You can't go to your insurer and say like, I'm just going for a seamless user experience. So I'm just, you know, dropping all yeah. the gates. So that's like good business value exchange. Yeah, and um, you know why do why do they even let's let's say that they even could get the cyber insurance? It would be obviously a lot more expensive, but if somebody's account was hacked and they made the decision, the the individual said, "Well, I didn't want the inconvenience or multi-factor." Um, 
the bank offering that option right away incurs some level of liability, I would assume. And yeah, mm-hmm. they're going to be the ones that ultimately replenish the funds, even though it was a decision on the account holder. Um, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, nor do I play one on TV. But uh, if you check the box that says I acknowledge the risks um, and, and if I lose any money, it's all on me. I bet that wouldn't hold water if you really you know, can't push the shove on it. For sure. And I think we can even we can even simplify that, right? I mean, it's like why banks highly encourage you, if not charge you for paper statements, right? Because they're just trying to save money on paper and yeah. mail costs. Um, okay. So I want to turn our attention now to in the day-to-day with your clients and you come on board, um, are you road mapping? Can you speak to project prioritization? It strikes me that if you had um, a more novice level uh, customer, they could be easily distracted by either shiny objects or headlines, right? They could sort of start freaking out about um, exchange servers and you're like, oh, by the way, you don't have an on-prem exchange server. I'm just, how do, how do you sort of keep the focus? Because it, it seems like so much of cybersecurity is just discipline, right? You have to keep the discipline in the protocol and the technology and, and, um, and the, just in your processes. Yeah. Um, very business dependent on how we would approach the discussion. Sometimes clients come to us and say, we got to have this. And we look at it, we'll have a conversation with them, right? Do you need it for, is it a business reason or is this just the CEO is with another CEO and they had breakfast and the other CEO has one, so he thinks he needs one too. (laughs) see that a lot. Um, But um, if they come to us and say, help us implement X, we will always say, okay, let's talk about why we're doing that so that we can assess the overall impact because it's rare you can deploy anything without some impact on other aspects of your environment. Right, Um, good point. More often than not, we're seeing clients coming to us and saying, conceptually, I know I need to do something. I have a new compliance requirement. I was denied cyber insurance because they said I had this problem. Um, They're going to raise my rate if I don't do something to address this. I don't know what that means. Help talk me through it. So we will kind of put it into terms of saying, okay, they're talking about the way you remotely access your system and the way you're doing it is a bit dated and there are some better options and here are some options. And again, we'll try to coach them through it and help them prioritize it and its uh, impact on the business. Um, In the last six, eight months or so, um, compliance has become a much larger thing. And quite frankly, a lot of customers out there, a lot of companies in the defense industrial base are one step above bring your own device. Um, Right. My corporate laptops, but they have a very modest infrastructure. They Mm -hmm. don't a um, lot of uh, technology deployed on them. It's, you know, what do I need to do to meet the requirement? The government's done this to itself in some ways because they have that whole concept of um, um, lowest price, um, technically qualified uh, uh, procurements. So they take everybody that makes the cut 
and takes the one that's cheapest. Well, that kind of encourages a certain approach across the contractor base too. Um, but for many of those, they require a series of projects. And, you know, we're not going to have somebody come to us and say, okay, yeah, this is going to cost you this much money up front. We won't touch anything else until you uh, do all of this. We help find a way to do that over a period of time. And if it takes a year, it takes a year. Um, we understand the impact. You know, we don't want to bring on clients just so that um, we can charge them a lot of money and then it makes them difficult to stay in business. That doesn't make sense either. Um, let's find a way that um, you get the biggest bang for the buck on the early projects, um, the most on compliance, you know, how many boxes can we check and phase it out over whatever period of time makes sense to them. Yeah. And that strikes me as also very interesting because, you know, I can see a world in which somebody thinks their MSP is like, oh, those are the IT guys. But it seems that through your relationship, you do have to learn the more intimate workings of the business. Like, how do you make money? What are your liabilities? Because you have to be able to make that case. Yeah, we, uh, IT, this, this is a little um, cliche. IT has to be a business partner whether it's an IT internal shop or it's an outsourced IT function. Mm -hmm. um, in one of my previous lives, I was a CIO at a company that uh, we grew from 100 folks to over 500 before we sold to one of the large um, defense contractors. Um, IT has to be part of every business discussion. You cannot... IT can't come out and say, we're going to deploy this because it's a cool IT thing to deploy if it doesn't support the business. Right. And likewise, if the business is saying, I need certain IT things to make my line of business grow, then IT needs to find a way to support it. And the answer of uh, the classic answer out of IT is no, you can't do that. Um, and the real way to do it is to say, no, uh, we can't do that because that's a risky solution from either the platform isn't really supported, it's open source as opposed to, you know, I can get a license. Um, there's any number of reasons IT could say no, but you better have an option available and say, but here's how I think I can address what you're asking. Um, in a way that will meet both of our needs. And yeah, if you can do that, you can be successful. Yeah, it's well put. Um, cool. So I do, I do want to close out. Um, we've talked with others about uh, certain compliance requirements, but CMMC is relatively new on the scene, but you guys being in the DC area, I reckon you have to deal with it a lot more. So can you just, give us kind of a brief primer on that and its implications for the, the business ecosystem there? Sure. Um, and, and brief in me and CMMC, <laughs> but I'm going to give it a best shot. Um, the fundamental requirements go back to 2017. Um, DOD put a requirement out for compliance with NIST 800-171. It was a self-attestation model. It was a, you produce some documents but it was a voluntary compliance. It really wasn't even trust, but verify. It was pretty voluntary um, and self-attestation. Years go by, DOD continues to lose unclassified information. 
Uh, NDIA, I think it was, did a survey like 80% of most of the defense industrial base wasn't even aware of the requirement. DOD got irritated. Um, now we have CMMC. So it took that requirement from 2017, added a few modest things to it, and now puts third-party assessment into the model. So one of those M's also is maturity. Um, mm. It is a, you can't just yell down the hall. I spent a lot of time in small and medium-sized businesses. The process was yelling down the hall to get something done, right? You know, that's what you did. Um, you need a little bit more formality around that now for CMMC. Um, but it's going to require third-party uh, assessment to come in and validate that you have policies, procedures, people, and technology, and you are in fact compliant in level three's case with all 130 requirements. Um, it's going to phase in over the next five years or so. It's gotten a little bit delayed. Things are sliding a little to the right, but companies are at least looking at it and saying, I see a compliance requirement, help me get there. And what do I need to do it? They don't have to, it's not gonna throw a switch, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. not gonna happen simply by saying, I'm gonna go to this vendor and they're gonna give me a widget that's CMMC level three that will solve all my problems. There's going to be a fairly lengthy uh, process for a company to get the culture changed, to get the policies in place, to deploy some technology. But again, it's IT centric, but it involves a lot more than IT. It's HR, it's contracts, it's program managers, it's how data flows, it's who grants access, who reviews things. Um, it's gonna be a change. Um, the model, quite frankly, it's pay to play, right? Everybody's gonna have to do it. Um, so it will level the playing field. And one of the disadvantages to the trust model of 2017 if I was in a company that took it seriously and did what I was supposed to do, I was spending a little bit more money than my competitor who wasn't. And to go back to that least tech mm -hmm. cost, technically qualified, guess who got the contract? So you either ate it out of profit or you raised your price and maybe it hurt your, your uh, competitiveness. Um, everybody's going to be doing the same thing now. Um, and we're seeing it, um, it's going to be really painful for a lot of these uh, manufacturing companies. You know, your traditional um, DOD contractor around the DC area in the Beltway, they do a lot of R&D, CETA type work, um, mm -hmm. you know, staff augmentation on government sites, all that kind of stuff. Um, these manufacturing companies that are Maybe they're just milling parts that are ultimately going into the, the F-35 or they're, they're bending sheet metal that becomes part of some assembly so further on. Some of that documentation might be considered controlled unclassified information. So they can't bend that metal or cut that part without being CMMC level three. And that is a huge change for manufacturing. Um, well, as we as as we've seen recently, at least also from the interest in our services, is that manufacturing is well under attack. So you know it may and, be a welcome change to be, have those validated protocols. And, and um, so the DoD through the states 
has been setting up grants. Um, we have partnered with the state of Maryland. We're talking with Virginia right now. Um, they are coming up with ways to help offset some of those costs mm-hmm. uh, for manufacturers. So for anybody who's listening who wasn't aware of it, um, reach out to your state government, look around for one of the technology assistance programs, um, but they're getting specific money from DOD to help offset CMMC costs. Oh, that's great. Well, that's a, that's a good note to end on when it's more positive than solar winds. Um, so Frank, I want to thank you for the time uh, and your expertise. It's been a, it's been an interesting conversation. I, I thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And uh, if you want to dedicate a couple, three hours, we can talk about CMMC at length one day. All right. Sounds great. Thanks yeah. so much. Okay. Take care. Thank you. First Watch is a production of Safeguard Cyber. It's produced by Chloe LeClaire with help from Phil Totora. Edited by Kai Crogetti with original music by Matthias Cefaletti. Subscribe to First Watch wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay safe, stay strong.